Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. If you missed any of my talk radio breakfast show, don't worry. We've put some of the punchiest bits of this morning's show into a bite-sized podcast. The Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. Enjoy. Online, on DAB and on the talk radio app. Talk Radio. Planning front page, a lot of the papers today uh, talking about how the government is setting out its uh, planning revolution. The white paper's being published, planning for the future. And it's supposed to be the biggest reform for 70 years. The government's got a target of 300,000 new homes a year by the mid-2020s. In total, a million new homes over the five-year parliament. But is this the way to achieve it? Well, let's talk to the Housing Secretary, Robert Jenrick, about it. Good morning to you. Hi, Julia. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, So biggest reform for 70 years. Um, Tories have been in power for quite a long time. Um, What's taken so long? And what are these reforms going to do that are going to actually mean we do actually get the housing and the number of houses that we actually want? Well, look, we do need to build more houses in the country. I think we can all agree on that. Houses of all types in 10 years in all parts of the country. Last year was a good year. We built 240,000 homes, more than any year in the last 30 years. But we've set an objective of building 300,000 homes, uh, which we think is about the right number to make homes more affordable for young people, get more people on to the housing ladder. So the reforms that we're proposing today are a radical shift. They involve uh, a new system which will be much faster and simpler. It will enable local communities through a new plan-making process to uh, divide land into one of three categories, land where uh, development is encouraged, land for renewal, where there'll be a faster route through the planning system, particularly for high-quality homes that meet local design codes, and then one part of uh, every local area, understandably, where people want homes. Uh, no development happened for land to be protected, uh, which will include the green belt areas outstanding natural beauty and so on. We're going to be cutting red tape, but not standards. We actually think this can drive up standards by helping more small and medium-sized builders into the market, a more competitive housing market than we have today, and enabling local people to have meaningful engagement, particularly at the crucial moment, which is when the plans are being produced, not after the event, as many people try and influence the process Today. Well, listen, we're often told is it, the planning is the problem and that's what takes so long. And it can be now seven years for someone to you know, buy a property or buy some land to want to build on it before the first you know, shovel goes in. You want to cut that to two and a half years. But the trouble is you are going to allow local people to have their say, quite rightly, over what areas are designated for growth, for renewal, for protection. But local councillors, they take a long time making the decisions and they turn down planning decisions because of pressure from local people. Because, as you know, everyone 
one wants there to be more homes built apart from people in their own local area. It's not NIMBYism, not in my backyard. It's banana. Build absolutely nothing anywhere near anyone, which is which, you know, is, is the mantra. Um, what does this do to actually change that? Because once you allow local people to have a say, as you should, then local people are going to stop a lot of those developments. Well, it tries to strike a better balance in the system we have today. Actually, people are not really engaging in the current planning system. Only about 1% of people engage with local plan making because, as you say, it's so long-winded and convoluted. Only about 4% of people even engage in planning applications, you know, when somebody is trying to build something in a field next to your house, uh, which you may not approve of. Um, So the current system isn't really engaging people effectively. We think the answer is that in some parts of every area to have... Uh, a much faster route to development. But those areas, as you say, will be chosen by local people. We're also going to really try to drive up standards using design codes where a local community can decide what matters to them. So if it was my local area in Nottinghamshire, we care about our local vernacular, which is red brick and red tiles. You can set that in the law so that new homes have to be built to meet those standards. If we can make housing more attractive, and we can ensure that infrastructure actually flows with the housing. So you get the roads, the railways, you know, the, the schools, the, the hospitals and the playgrounds being built with the housing. Then we hope that we can assuage many people's concerns about new development and get those houses built. And another element of the plan today is that we'll be asking landowners and developers to pay more with a higher and simpler new charge, an infrastructure levy, which will make sure that that social infrastructure actually comes first. Um, but so OK, well, let, let's talk about that, because, again, a lot of the issue for people isn't that there are lots of you know, new homes. And I, I mean, obviously, lots, most of the people in this country don't live in London. But I look around London, there are cranes everywhere, loads and loads of apartment blocks being built. But these are apartment, apartments that are costing hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds. They're not suitable for uh, for families. They're, they're not affordable for most people. So people are concerned that developments are made uh, building the sort of housing the average normal person can afford and the sort of family homes that they want. Now, you've got currently the community in infrastructure levy you say you're going to replace this with this new infrastructure levy so it's a fixed percentage of the value of all new developments to pay for local infrastructure the roads the schools and all of that um, um, why do you think this will work better than the current system well the current system uh, there are two ways in which we as a country uh, take a share of the uplift in value as a result of planning commissions being granted one as you say is the community infrastructure levy and one is section 106 they are very complicated they lead to months if not years of wrangling between local councils and developers and accusations that developers uh, argue away the benefits to the local community on the grounds of viability that the scheme just simply isn't viable if you build that playground or or add those affordable homes the system that we're going to create brings all of that to a close there'll be a simple certain charge a consolidated infrastructure levy everyone will know what it is You'll know when you buy the piece of land or you start building the homes and the local community will know up front approximately the amount of money they're going to be able to to spend on. So no one will be able to get out of it? Absolutely. It will be it will be a certain predictable system. No wrangling, no developer or landowner will be able to wriggle out of their obligations. To support the local community. Okay, and if I were a property de- housing secretary, if I were a property developer, would I be able to wriggle out of it if I sat next to you at a Tory fundraising dinner? No, absolutely not. I mean, that's the purpose. Uh, that 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 is one of the uh, beneficiaries, you know, benefits of this this policy that we will have 
a system that everybody understands up front. It's a charge nobody can avoid, and there'll be no debate between the local community, the council and the developer. Surely, with all due respect, you can understand why people think it's a bit hypocritical that you, all the documentation, we've seen it all being published by your department, uh, that you uh, got involved in a planning decision involving the former, the millionaire and former Daily Express owner, uh, uh, Richard Desmond, a £1 billion development, the Westbury development in East London. And you over... Uh, you, you overruled your own planning experts and the local authority to approve that uh, that development. Specifically, the day before, you told we've seen the emails. You told your civil servants it not, must be done on that day, deliberately so they could avoid a forty-five million pound levy uh, to Tower Hamlets Council, one of the poorest councils in the country, uh, to put that through. You've got to understand there'll be people listening to this saying you don't care about local infrastructure and local councils getting money. You you yourself. You yourself approved a, 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 a planning development to avoid somebody having to pay millions to a poor local authority to pay for local infrastructure. No, Julia, that's a complete misrepresentation. Which bit was wrong? Complete misrepresentation. Which bit was wrong? Well, many things were wrong. Firstly, it only came to the Secretary of State for a decision because the local council had sat on it for months and refused to take a decision themselves. They were actually in breach of the law by failing to determine... Did you overall your own planning inspectorate? Well, yes. Secretaries of State, uh, well, you make it sound like that's something that's unusual. Secretaries of State come to different conclusions to planning inspectors all the time. All of my predecessors have done that of different political persuasions. Ministers decide, officials advise. I supported the proposal because it enabled 1,500 homes to be built, hundreds of affordable homes, a new school well, to be built. And, and, a lo- and a lot more benefit would have gone to the local local area. I, I feel very strongly about this because I did my local newspaper training in the East End of London under Tower Hamlets Council. I know just how poor that area is. It's one of the poorest places in the country. With all, I mean, just with all due respect, you you, you push through the, the the evidence published by your own department shows that you push through uh, this decision. You wanted a decision; it was absolutely vital. You made it very clear to your staff this had this decision had to be taken on this day because um, and this is very specific. And we know that the very next day the, that uh, Richard Desmond and the property development he was looking at would have had to spend forty five million pounds and given it to the local council to spend on local infrastructure. No, that's not correct, Julia. I didn't make the decision the day before. And it's a perfectly legitimate and long-standing principle. You pushed principle. for it to happen before that it's date. It's a very long-standing principle in law that a Secretary of State should make a decision, but if possible, one way or another, before there's the material change in circumstances that may, might make the project unviable. If the project becomes unviable, then there are no homes, there are no affordable homes, and there are no schools and community benefits. And there's no money flowing to the local council whatsoever. The people who will lose out if a development like this doesn't go ahead are the people of Tower Hamlets. And if Tower Hamlets Council had wanted to make this decision, they could and should have done when the application sat with them for many months. Do you think most of the people of Tower Hamlets can afford any of the flats that were in that development? Are you kidding me? Do you know what the average income is of people in Tower Hamlets Council? Well, Julia, there were hundreds of affordable homes. What's council's affordable? What was the cheapest home that was affordable? Well, I don't know what the... the I don't know. You, were, would have been, you took an interest in the, ab- in, in the development. This is the problem, isn't it? The, it we have this well, ongoing issue. There is, there, there is a lack of trust here. Well, if I can answer the question, what the new system that I've designed is going to do will ensure that councils can't sit on applications, that decisions will have to be made swiftly, that local people will be actively involved in these decisions. They'll be able to set, for example, the design of buildings so they can say if uh, they want a particular... Uh, a building to match with uh, local history and vernacular. And there will be no debate 
about how much developers need to pay for local infrastructure. That will be set in law. Everybody okay. will have to pay that. And these sorts of wranglings, which you know are not uncommon, they happen all over the country, unfortunately, and they take months or years to resolve and can become very contentious, will be a thing of the past. We're also going to ask developers and landlords to actually pay more. So there will be more social housing, affordable housing and community benefits as a result of this policy than we've seen in the past. Can you just tell me what, what counts as affordable housing? Because we've had a former chancellor in George Osborne who thought that 450 grand was affordable housing. And I think most of my listeners right now will be guffawing at that. Well, affordable housing, we, we have a range of different affordable housing products. There are socially rented homes that are available. There are affordable rents, which means 80% of market value. We also have shared ownership, and I've reformed that so that you'll now be able to get on the foot on the housing ladder through shared ownership with a very uh, small percentage of a property, potentially as low as buying a 10% equity stake, which will enable people on quite modest incomes to do that. Yeah. And then this policy that we're announcing today will also enable us to move forward with our first homes proposal, which offers a 30% discount to the market price for key workers like teachers, nurses, police officers and army veterans, as well as local first-time buyers. All those types of affordable housing will now be available and funded through this new consolidated and much simpler levy. OK, and just finally, you've got this target of a million new homes over a five-year parliament. Um, do you think you're going to achieve that? I hope so. We, we met the million home target uh, in the last five years. But look, if we don't take steps like this, we certainly won't. As a result of the pandemic, the number of starts of new properties has fallen significantly. So this year will be a challenging one for the industry. But that's why these reforms are very timely. Okay. If we want to build the homes, if we want to protect the millions of jobs that depend on housing construction, we've got to take bold steps. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, Talk Radio. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, Talk Radio. 
Right now, let's talk about uh, that uh, planning law overhaul uh, for England. Uh, Rico uh, Vatulovic uh, is the head of housing at the National Federation of Builders, and he joins us now. Good morning to you, Rico. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning to you. Lovely to speak to you. Um, uh, we've been told this is a planning revolution, biggest shake-up for 70 years, lots of fine words. It's all about trying to speed up the planning process, designating areas in every single local authority, either for growth, for renewal or for protection. Public will be consulted on, on those uh, areas, uh, but also there'll be new design codes. We're told that new properties need to look nice, they need to fit in, and all streets will be tree-lined. Uh, we're going to build you know, hundreds of thousands of new homes, uh, allowing small builders to compete with the big house builders what's not to like in that i have a funny feeling there may be plenty for people not to like and um, what do you make of those proposals well i think broadly a lot of those things are happening anyway um the tree-lined streets the beautiful homes beautiful places we don't hear about them and the reason we don't hear about them is because we focus so heavily on the uh, the development signs that aren't particularly done very well um and i understand that but this is a culmination of many years of especially lobbying on my side um, to try and get people to understand what is currently failing in the current system. So there are really great opportunities, but how is it going to be delivered? Um, how, is it, how are we physically going to get democracy involved? Is this just going to create animosity? But actually, there's a really key component here. Are we actually going to finally hear from what's called the silent majority, the people that want development, who want to see things done? Yeah, and, and this is part of the issue, isn't it? Because we know that it's, it, people are saying, oh, we need more homes, we need more homes, we've got to, we've got to uh, find places for the many more millions of people in this country to live. But no one seems to want it near them. And we were talking a little bit earlier on the show. It's not nimbyism. Uh, it's uh, not in my backyard. It's banana. Build absolutely nothing anywhere near anyone. I'm, I, I've always loved that phrase because it, it does. It sums it up. Everyone says build more homes, just not at the end of their street. Um, and there is a silent majority who are desperate for them to get on the housing ladder. And I'm desperate. I'm, I'm a homeowner. I want there to be more properties built. But I, I do care about what they look like. And we know that, um, yeah. uh, that this is a big issue for a lot of people, that actually, you say we focus on the bad developments. Well, there shouldn't be any bad developments. What, why do so many of the, the property developments, why are they so darn ugly? Well, I think you've got an interesting combination here. If we look back to the 80s and 70s, we used to get a few different developers on a big site and they would compete effectively, not just on price, but on quality and on look and on the type of house they build. That's gone now, really. It's large sites being delivered. And you look at something like someone like the CPRE, uh, these organisations that want to protect the countryside. What they're actually doing is they're damaging the countryside because instead of getting more smaller, to de smaller developers to build and build out within the existing communities, they're, they're just blocking everything. And that then leads the local authority to say hey we better build somewhere else in this area and we'll do it away from people on a really big site and we'll get yeah. some big guys to deliver it because it's quick yeah. um, and then you don't get the type of homes people want and then you lose more countryside so there are so many different things at play here and actually yeah. if we just let more of our smaller builders um, you know self-build housing associations community land trusts all these different groups um, build we would have much nicer looking well, places and that's a crucial thing isn't it because a lot of the criticism has been that uh, it's not the planning that's the problem it's the it's the, the big build uh, building companies they get the planning they know how to navigate that system and they've got the funds to do so but then they sit on the land they land bank it because they, they want to push the value of the properties up and they can build fewer homes and get great profits but they're, they're actually completely pricing smaller builders smaller developers out of the market is that the case 
Not really, because if you think about it, local authority, what they do is they allocate sites. If you've got to build 2,000 yeah. homes, you allocate a number of sites to make it up to 2,000. If you don't allocate any of the small ones, and the smaller ones are all there knocking at your door, and you're just allocating the larger ones, then what are you going to get? Only the larger and larger house builders doing it. So what this new build, 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 and this new planning for the future consultation does is it says, hey, this can be all, already be allocated, and now you can get more different players of, you know, delivering them. And it with all the local authorities saying, hey, we don't have enough resources, maybe this makes their life a little bit easier now and they don't have to put as much resource in. And what about this issue about getting developers uh, to actually build you know, some affordable housing? Again, I mean, some 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 government ministers' ideas of what's affordable are rather different from most yeah. of my listeners' ideas of what's affordable, I have to say. Uh, £450,000 is not an affordable home, nope. uh, George Osborne seemed to have thought when he was first Chancellor. Um, but um, there was this idea, that there's this plan that you know, you'd have to have a certain percentage of a, a social or affordable housing as part of any big development. This always seemed to get squeezed out. There'd be a change in the development. Something went, you know, it was, was something was changed in the, in the contract. And what a surprise! Very little, very few of these homes ever ended up being built. The new plan is for developers to have to pay a new infrastructure levy, this fixed percentage of the value of the new development, and that would then pay for local infrastructure, presumably to be able to build other homes, uh, to build roads, to build schools, and the like, um, and, and discounted homes for first-time buyers. Is that the answer to the problem of people on, at the bottom end of the ladder? I mean, it's a difficult one because if you look at regionally, you know, some of our uh, some of the members I represent will build a three-bedroom semi-detached house uh, for one hundred and thirty thousand pounds, not in London, yeah. um, and not in the southeast, or a four-bedroom detached house for two hundred and thirty thousand. Now, I would argue that. For many, that is affordable over a lifetime, yeah. but we don't talk about them. Now, actually, SMEs proportionally deliver more affordable housing than volume developers. So you think there's another incentive to get them building, but we haven't for the last decade. Now, what we really need is the government to encourage councils to use the funding they have to build more social housing, if that's what we need. And, I, and we absolutely do. Um, and they can build their own homes and if they want as well. But if that's not working for them, maybe we have a, a government grant coming in that's you know, centrally funded. And then, you know, we pay as taxpayers for those homes in a slightly different way yeah. from them borrowing the money themselves. But this is about getting lots of different type of homes being built. If we don't do that, it's really hard to move the affordability needle. And, and just finally, um, have we actually got enough builders to build all these homes? Because every, uh, I mean, every single uh, government has come in, every big uh, regional mayor has come in and said, we're going to build more homes. And we, we never seem to see the numbers we're looking at. The government target currently is 300,000 new homes a year by the mid-2020s, a total of one million homes over the full five-year parliament. Um, even if they did go ahead with these reforms, they got them through, and there's no reason to think they won't get them through um, with, with the majority of 80 in the Commons, um, they're, they're, they're saying they're going to allow three and a half years for local councils to designate areas into these three different options of growth renewal and protection uh, and then of course you know, that's going to involve public consultation and then of course you've still got the planning process even if you fast track that from the current seven years to two and a half years um i still don't see how they're going to build a million new homes over this parliament uh, again julia always asking the right questions um yeah it's going to be really difficult we've lost two-thirds of small and medium-sized developers over the last 20 years um bearing in mind they train seven in ten apprentices so unless you have them you actually can't get enough of a, of a workforce but but the two three years is actually quite useful because it allows a developer to say I'm, i can open up now i can start and i've got certainty that i can i can win a pipeline of work if you don't have a pipeline of work it's really difficult to open up as a company right. and if you don't have certainty in planning you know you can't get funding unless you have that planning in place so all the money that's offered by government means diddly squat unless you have that planning application in place okay. and they say yes you can build online on dab and on the talk radio app 
Talk Radio. 300,000 homes were destroyed in a matter of seconds uh, when that extraordinary blast uh, came out uh, on Tuesday night. It was, of course, a blast that I mean, all the things that have happened to Beirut over all the years, something people would not have predicted, an ammonium nitrate supply, sort of fertiliser, uh, that was the cause. However, perhaps there should have been predictions on account of how it had been sitting in the depot at the port of Beirut for six long years, and all of the authorities knew about it. Well, with 400,000 or more injured, Many very seriously, that death toll of 135 is set to go up. And as I say, 300,000 people homeless, a quarter of the entire population of the city. Imagine if that happened in your own town or city. Well, let's talk about uh, the frantic uh, search for survivors of that deadly blast. Dan Harper is a broadcaster in uh, uh, Beirut. He's lived there for the last 20 years and joins us now. Good morning to you, Dan. Good morning. Good morning. I mean, there's extraordinary scenes. We've all seen the photographs since. We've all seen that incredible video footage of that blast. It devastated an entire city. Um, talk us through just the human cost and the devastating effect this has had on a on a people who have lived through, they would have thought, probably far worse through civil wars, wars, all the devastation they've seen for many, many years uh, and now hit by this entirely, entirely preventable explosion. Tell us what the human cost has been. It, it's the reputation that Lebanon's had that they've been trying to shake off uh, for all, since the Civil War. And now, you know, it's it's back to the same kind of connotations. And this is what the Lebanese are so sad about. You know, this is one of the feelings that they have, along with the despair and the anger, is that, you know, we're still in the same position we were during the Civil War, where we have, you know, destruction, death um, uh, and political turmoil. And now this rising anger amongst the people that could turn violent again. And that's a very big concern, isn't it? Because there'd already been demonstrations uh, about what's happened with the lockdown as a result of the coronavirus. Because, uh, as you say, just, I mean, I think most of us don't here in the UK spend too much tension now uh, focusing on what's going on in many of the countries in the Middle East. We've had, frankly, our own problems to worry about. But obviously, uh, Lebanon going through civil war for many years, war with Israel. Uh, and then just when things were really just starting to recover, uh, they they were hit by the Syrian civil war uh, and pe- and million refugees pouring over the border there, uh, then uh, hit by uh, well ongoing issues with uh, corrupt uh, governments, uh, incompetent governments, and then hit by the coronavirus and then the lockdown, um, devastated the currency. Uh, ex- I mean, it's an extraordinary fact. There's 60% fall in the value of the currency in recent weeks. Um, absolute chaos. But now we even see not just people losing their homes, but worries about food supply, the, the water supply already, uh, even long before this explosion, uh, undrinkable uh, uh, because, of, again, incompetence uh, by the government and the officials. Uh, but now the uh, the grain supply, that's been hit by the blast. And there's talk of the, of the city running out of food in just a month's time. Yeah, Lebanon, Lebanese are very resilient um, and they've come handle most uh, most of the problems that they've had and, and carry on living and it's amazing you'll you'll see all kinds of issues yet they'll gather together and they'll have a great meal and they won't you know, they'll they'll talk about the anguish with the with the political system but they will still get through it and now i'm starting to see for the first time that the Lebanese are not going to be able to get through it because when you haven't got food and you haven't got a house and you haven't got electricity and you haven't got a job Altogether, it just makes life impossible. And that's why Lebanon now has reached the stage where it can't. It's not invincible. It can't be the resilient country that always bounces back if there isn't any country left. And 
you were talking about the, the currency. Yes, it's, it's just dreadful. You know, people's salaries have been halved and the cost of living has gone up five times. So let's say a, a kilogram of, of meat was 30,000 Lebanese lira. It's now 80 or 100,000. And if your salary has been halved, you can't afford meat. So you cut meat. Uh, then, you know, creams and shampoos and things like that. You can't, you can't afford those. So you stop those. And eventually you're just left with bread and a few bits and pieces. And that's how people are, are living now. A lot of people are living the middle class, the famous middle class of Lebanon, which makes the country so attractive for tourists, uh, etc., are now being pushed into the poverty line. So you're left with this extreme uh, elite, the ones you know in the leadership, the ones that are in the uh, Fakra in, in the mountains here, you know, with uh, with beautiful chalets and things like that, and driving around brand new cars. And then you have the extreme poor, which is you know most of the population and the refugees and the people in the Palestinian refugee camps that are living a really, really awful life. Indeed. And it's getting worse and worse. Well, the UK is planning to send a small advance party of armed forces personnel to Beirut uh, sometime today to liaise with the Lebanese authorities dealing with the emergency response. Teams of medics, search and rescue experts have been on standby to deploy if needed. We've got a lot of expertise in this field. But um, I do detect the British public... Uh, a certain weariness with dealing with issues in the Middle East and a focus on, look, you know, we've got our own problems, thank you very much, don't have time to deal with yours, but tell us why we should be paying attention. Lebanon is a wonderful country. People are very kind. They've been extremely hospitable to me. I, I think that they are, they just want to be secure, they want to be safe, they want prosperity, and they deserve to have these things. And unfortunately, because of all the outside interference, this is my personal view, and a lot of people feel this way, whether it be through proxy wars or arming certain militias or uh, encouraging the sectarianism in the country, we are in this situation. Uh, the Lebanese are actually quite patriotic and would, would be able to gather together. And this country can succeed, even with all its different religious sects, if it's left alone to do that. And I don't believe it has been left alone and given that chance. Online, on DAB and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. Thanks for listening to the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and give me a good review. And don't forget to catch me on the Talk Radio Breakfast Show every weekday from 6.30 until 10. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.